Hi there, this is Steve, but this isn't the beginning of the show. Before we begin, I invite you to check out my free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or leader with financial responsibility in your company, you'll definitely not want to miss this one. I'll cover how a winning strategy combined with operational excellence drives higher cash flow and firm value. You can watch it for free at cultbar.com. I'll also link it in the show notes below. I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who want to elevate their game and reach new levels of abundance and success. I'm Steve Coffrin, the founder of Coltvar, and I've spent my entire career growing and turning around companies, and together we'll explore the latest happenings in the world of strategy and finance. Let's do this. Before we begin, just remember that this podcast is for educational purposes and the information shared herein should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Check out our terms and conditions in the show notes to learn more. Now onto the show. Tom, welcome to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast. I'm excited for this episode today because you know we have a lot of uh, founders and other CXOs who are listening, who are in early stages of their business. And I think you you bring a lot of insights to that area. So I'm excited to hear more of your thoughts. So welcome. Uh, it's great to be here, Steve. Thank you. So you wrote a book called Why Startups Fail, uh, a new roadmap for entrepreneurial success. And, and today we're going to dive into that. You're also a, a Harvard professor and you teach a lot of courses around entrepreneurship and, and venture capital and just in early stage investments. I want to understand though, you know, as we kick this episode off, what what was your journey like up to this point? Oh, well, I'm old enough for that to take the whole episode, so um, <laughs> I'll I'll try to be brief. But um, I grew up in Cleveland, went to Harvard College, um, thought I was going to be an economist studying agriculture in third world countries, and uh, actually had a taste of that and decided that that was not the path. So I became a management consultant, um, got an MBA along the way. Uh, but all, all all along the way, um, knew that I wanted to do academia. So at, at intervals, thought out, coming out of college that I'd, I'd go straight into a PhD program and decided to not do that then. And uh, in, in my 20s and 30s, sort of at two-year intervals, kept asking, is it time? Is it time? And um, finally talked my wife into letting me do it because it involved a pretty substantial pay cut from from what I was making as a management consultant, getting a doctorate for me was a midlife crisis. You know, some some folks get a red sports car. Um, I, I went and got a doctorate uh, in my late 30s, and uh, joined the faculty 24 years ago. And didn't think when I joined that I was studying entrepreneurship. I had worked um, as a consultant with big companies, but I worked in media and entertainment, and which by the time I left in the early 90s was merging into um, electronics and and uh, what eventually became the internet or the World Wide Web. And, and so when I arrived um, on the business school faculty, uh, they had me teach a course on what was um, the, the, the rapidly evolving um, World Wide Web internet um, in, in 1998, 1999, you know, sort of um, eventually had that tiger by the tail and realized uh, that um, I, I was studying startups. So I got, I got pulled into startups from that direction and fell in love with it and never looked back. So how did management consulting kind of forge a path forward for you? Like, what did you learn? I'm sure you learned a lot about just how do you solve problems? How do you come up with solutions? And, and it, it probably changed your mindset um, quite a bit, but tell me more about like how your experience at McKinsey really helped you and, and shaped um, your path forward. Yeah, no, I, I think you hit it right on the head with the problem solving. Um, 
I mean, you learn a lot about business, obviously, in a job like that. I was there 11 years and two years before business school at, at Booz Allen, different consulting firm. But what you really get over that time is a, is a structured way of, of framing a problem and making sure you're asking the right questions, busting the problem into pieces, having hypotheses about about each aspect of the problem and and figuring out what's the um, what's an 80-20 amount of analysis you want to do to sort of make sure your hypotheses are either on target or off target. And and that sort of structured way of approaching a problem, um, some, something I take with me to this day, you know, super valuable discipline. Let's talk about something else that you mentioned. So a, a couple of weeks ago, I was having a conversation with a founder of a private equity firm, very successful firm. You know, he's he and his firm, uh, they've sold over 150 companies. They have a multiple, multiple billions of dollars under management. And he said to me something interesting, which, which you kind of brought up. And um, this is what I want to ask you more about. But he said, 25 years ago, I was in investment banking. He's making a ton of money. He had a nice corner office. He had a lot of direct reports. So he had like that status, that prestige, you know, he's going places, but he thought at one point, what am I doing? Like, why am I in this firm making money for other people when I could be doing this myself? And my passion is really in buying companies and in actually executing on these LBOs. And finally he sat down with his wife and said, Hey, look, this is uh, what I'm going to do. And she said, okay, great. So what, what does salary look like? And he said, a big fat zero. And, uh, you know, so she's like zero, like what the heck? And he told me how, you know, it is a battle, you know, for several months of them just talking about this move. And then finally one day she looked at him and said, Hey, you're going to do this no matter what. Right. And he said, yeah, I'm going to do it. And he just committed. He just said, look, this is what I want to do. And he forged a path forward and he never looked back. And I think a lot of listeners and, you know, I don't think it matters necessarily where they're at in their career per se. Um, but I come across a lot of people who, you know, whether they want to go off on their own and, and start their own company, or maybe they just want to make a career shift, or maybe they want to get into academia, like you're mentioning, but they're fearful, they're scared, they they think about, oh my gosh, you know, this is going to be a giant pay cut, or what are my friends going to think, or you know, it's a massive shift into a new industry that they're not experienced with. So what what's your thought on that? Because you've been down that path, and you left, you know, you left a great job, and and you went into this uncertain world. Talk a little bit. Yeah. About that. So so. Um... There's an easy part and a hard part. Um, I'll, I'll do the hard part first. So, you know, the move um, from being, I, I was a, a junior partner at McKinsey when I left and a couple of years away from the promotion to senior, which was a 50-50 kind of shot. My odds were probably no better than that. So I had already been through a tournament of sorts, but because only one in one, I was there one in five or one in six of the incoming associates made it to junior partner. So a lot of, of attrition along the way. And looking at academia, um, we only admit 4% of the people who apply to the Harvard Business School doctoral program. Um, and then of those 4% who get in, maybe half end up with a job at a top. My goal was to get a job at a top business school. And only about half get that. And then, you know, where I work, um, only one in four of the starting professors make it to tenure. So, um, you know, it sort of quickly gets to a, a one in a thousand kind of thing. So I went from one tournament to another, and that took a little bit of crazy, I think, too. But but it's, I was passionate about it, really wanted to do it. That's the hard part. The easy part was I was fortunate enough to have married an investment banker. And she had made a boatload of money. And, and, you know, so me taking uh, what amounted to a 95% pay cut um, really didn't sort of set the family back in any material way. I I, I got to chase my dream. 
So as you're teaching and as you're interacting with a lot of these students and just um, entrepreneurs, what advice would you give to somebody who's sitting here thinking, is now the time to make a pivot? Is now the time to go off on my own and pursue my passion and, and start a business or get into this venture or get into that? Yeah, it cuts both ways. Um, I mean, obviously you need an idea. I mean, there are folks who just are desperate to be entrepreneurs and and the journey they set out on is to find the idea. And that that can work. Um, and there's some things you can do to boost the odds of finding a good idea. But you know, most people take the plunge with an idea, something they've been thinking about and maybe have done some work on. And, and then the um, the part that cuts both ways is, you know, the later you do it in life, the more life experience you bring. Um, you've probably been working long enough to save some money, and, and most entrepreneurs will make some personal financial sacrifices, and bootstrap for quite a while, and, and and live on their savings. And and so you bring experience of the world. You've managed. Um, you've got some perspective on a problem, and you've got some money in the bank. On the other hand, um, you know the later you get into your 30s and even 40s, uh, the more life commitments you have. You, you know there, there 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 may be a mortgage, there may be private school tuitions. There's all that stuff. So uh, there are parts of being an entrepreneur that are just brutal, right? It's um it, it's 70, 80 hour weeks, week after week after week, and um, some, sometimes younger people are better to able to bear that burden. Yeah. If the idea is there and the passion's there, um, it's often hard to stop somebody. Yeah, absolutely. And that's good. We're as society, we're, we're, we're lucky that people are wired up to, to, to really want to do that so badly. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. So let's talk about your book. So what was the genesis behind the book and, and why did you decide to write it? You know, you've probably talked to enough people involved with startups to know that um, most entrepreneurs have an origin story. Sometimes it's even true. You know, the origin story of eBay was the um, founder's fiance was a Pez dispenser collector, apparently made up by some PR agent. So, uh, so here's my origin story. You can figure out if you think it's it's true or not. Okay. Um, I uh, was teaching startup management and. Uh, there's this, uh, a lot of your listeners will have heard of a thing called Lean Startup. It's a sort of swept out of Silicon Valley starting around 2008. Anybody connected with the world of startups will know this is a, a way of, of sort of approaching your venture like a scientist. You've got a hypothesis about what's going to work, who the target customer is, what their unmet needs are, and what's the solution for that. And then you test, you run experiments. And the, the key, the lean part of it is the experiments are no more complicated or expensive or time consuming than they need to be to get a rigorous signal. So I've been teaching this approach and sort of sending off legions of MBAs into the world to, to apply the approach and launch businesses. Uh, a team that um, I'd worked pretty closely with um, after graduation, they went, they went off to management consulting for a year and didn't hate their jobs, but didn't love them either. And, and were dreaming nights and weekends um, of launching a business together. They were two tall women who um, had trouble finding work clothing that fit them well and looked good. And so they set out to create a company that would produce design and, and manufacture better fitting, stylish, affordable work apparel for young professional women. And it's, it's possible to do two of those three things, better fitting, stylish and affordable, but it's really hard to do all three. And, uh, and so um, I invested in the company, I had a lot of confidence in the founders. They were the perfect combination of outside inside. So the one very charismatic could sell the vision and the other um, deliberate and disciplined could run the operations. And they uh, raised a million dollars 
tried to raise a million and a half. That's part of the failure story. Launched the business. Um, they had run, by the way, um, perfect what the lean startup crowd would call minimum viable product tests. So mm-hmm. tr- in this case, trunk shows where they literally brought sample outfits in trunks, you know, rounded up 30 women in the tar market and tried the thing on. And, you know, will you place a pre-order for this? And, and had really strong response to that, which is good signal about future demand. And when they launched the business, sure enough, the demand was there. Um, it, it grew well and they got repeat purchases. Their returns um, because of poor fit were on a par with other e-commerce companies, which isn't terrible. But if your promise is better fit, you don't want to be average. Um, sure. and, and returns are expensive to process. So they were burning through their cash, um, making progress, good progress, but not enough to either um, raise new money from new investors or get the invis- existing investors to throw more in. So after a year, they ran out of cash and shut the business down. It was heartbreaking. And for me, confusing. I could point to a lot of things that had gone wrong, but I couldn't pinpoint the, the root cause of the failure. Uh, which is disconcerting, really. Here I was a supposed expert on entrepreneurship. And, you know, depending on how you define startup and failure, something like two thirds of startups fail. So this is an important phenomenon in my field. And uh, I was a failure at explaining failure. So this is 2013. I set off to sort of read everything I get my hands on, either by practitioners or academics, interviewed dozens, maybe hundreds of, of failed founders and the investors who back them, did survey work, and then um, wrote a whole bunch of cases. We, we teach at Harvard Business School by the case method. So I did 20 detailed, in-depth case studies of failed startups and brought the founders to class and, and explored that. And um, eight years later, you get a book, Things Move Slowly in Academia. <laughs> Well, and it's interesting that, you know, you say two thirds of companies fail, the startups fail. And with those odds, it's crazy to me that, you know, people coming out of business school, or maybe they're, they're leaving an existing job or corporate America to start another venture of their own, but they see these odds and they're still willing to go down that path. Why is that? And is that rate getting better over time? Did it used to be three quarters and now because of programs out there and books out there, now it's, you know, dropping over time, or is it, staying pretty consistent. So a lot of that question, uh, but what do you think? uh, So um, in in terms of the change over time, um, I think the honest answer is we don't know. But if I had to guess, um, we don't know because it's so tricky to, I mean, when, when does a startup become a startup? You know, if you're thinking about it um, on the weekend, is it a startup? I mean, I tend to think that it, until you've committed, quit your day job and committed to the thing full time, uh, you know, that's that's a big threshold to cross over, you know, and and what's at the same time, what's failure? You, know, you literally have to go out of business. Um, you know, things, companies go bankrupt and, and restructure and, and keep operating. They can generate enough cash flow after they restructure. So it's, those are all tricky. I would say there's two forces cutting in different directions. I mean, the, the lean startup ideas really have... Um, have I think improved the ability of entrepreneurs to avoid stupid, stupid mistakes about ideas for which there's just no demand. Uh, so that's the good news. The bad news is it's just gotten really, really inexpensive to launch, um, especially a software-based business, an internet or mobile-based business. You know, a thing that in 1999 would have cost five million dollars uh, today, you can do for 500 bucks. Um, you know, AW Amazon's uh, web services are out there and you can sort of put the whole thing on the cloud and, and um, there's, there's existing software, there's marketing, cha- digital marketing channels that are available to everybody. 
So we just have more people trying. There's there are more startups, and so so they're both more successes and more failures. Just more of more of everything, I would say. You know, to the question of are people crazy for doing it? A little bit, yeah. Um, I think all entrepreneurs um, think, even if they know the odds, and I think most do, um, they, they've got to have the overconfidence, the confidence to think they can beat the odds, and we rely on that. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, in my field. Um, Economists spend a lot of time trying to figure out whether it's uh, economists are fascinated with rational calculations. And uh, as far as they can tell, the calculation to become an entrepreneur is not economically rational. So they just come to the conclusion that people are valuing some other aspect of it, like independence, like being your own boss, like just sort of putting something out in the world that's never been there before, even if it fails, right? So a lot of times the entrepreneur will be proud of what they built, the team they built, the product they've launched. And what do you think failure actually means? Is failure by definition, you just run out of money, you go bankrupt, like you close the company or is failure, wow, I thought I was going to make a million bucks a year and I'm making a hundred grand. Hey, real quick, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you're an entrepreneur or business leader and you want to take your game to the next level or you want to avoid being crushed out there during these uncertain times, be sure to check out our free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence by visiting cultivar.com or through our Boosting Your Financial IQ app. I'll link this in the show notes as well. I'm also offering some freebies, so be sure to check it out. Now back to the show. Yeah, so... um You'll indulge a professor, I hope. We, we love definitions. So um, I'll, I'll, I'll parse failure for you a little bit. So there's such a thing as a good failure. We, if we go back to lean startup, somebody runs an experiment who's got, with all the uncertainty around a startup, um, you just can't know sometimes until you run the test. And sometimes the test comes back negative. And if you haven't wasted, if you had a good idea, but it turned out to not be a good idea, you know, when you actually tried it out and you haven't wasted time or money, um, that's a good failure. We should celebrate that. And, and venture capitalists, I think, would tell you, you know, they'll invest all day long and things that at least ex ante, you know, be, be, before you know the outcome, look like they're well constructed. And then um, there are, when you talk about failure, you also have to sort between mistakes made by the responsible party, by the founder in this case, and misfortunes that are out of control of the of the entrepreneur. And um, lots and lots of startup failures are due solely to misfortunes. And if you go back to the Great Recession 10, 12 years ago, you know, a lot of businesses went out of business just because the economy crashed hard and funding wasn't available. Or COVID, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of young businesses shut down through really no fault of the entrepreneur. So you got to set all that aside. What I'm interested um, in my research is situations where there's at least some um, mistake that the founder has made and whether those mistakes could have been anticipated um, of, and avoided. So then the question is, okay, what does failure mean in that context? And the definition I use in the book is basically investors did not or never will make get their money back or you know, make money on the deal. And you can fairly ask, okay, why the investor's perspective? Why not the entrepreneur's perspective? I mean, surely an entrepreneur can have goals that are go beyond um, just the financial return. And the answer to that is if you see years into a startup's life, only 40% of startups at that stage, sort of five years out, seven years out, are still run by the founder, um, st still have a founder CEO. 
I mean, the reality is the role outgrow the CEO role outgrows many individuals. You can't be both the sort of the the brilliant entrepreneur who gets the thing started and the thing, the and and, and the leader who runs the thing at scale. Some some do. I mean, we have the Bill Gateses and Elon Musks and Steve Jobs of the world, but you know we, we, they're special because they're special. Um, the, 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 the mere mortals um, are more likely to be um, either recognize they need to leave the company or get pushed out of the company by the board of directors. So, so you can't just take the entrepreneur's perspective. Society's perspective is actually pretty important here too. So there are financially successful startups that we all probably wish would disappear. You know, they have products that pollute or are addictive or exacerbate income inequality. And there are financial failures that actually do good for society in a lot of different ways. They train people that worked in the company to go off and do new stuff, um, or they just show other entrepreneurs what not to do. So, you know, like so many things, um, failure is complicated, but if you want to make it easy, um, investors didn't make money. Yeah. I like that definition. So let's talk about this. Do people ever come to you, Tom, with an idea and they think they love it, right? They think it's the best idea. They think they have product market fit, all that stuff. And you just sit there and you're like, that is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. So have you come across that? And if so, do you say something to them? Um, uh, then, I, then I you, used to. <laughs> okay. And then the second uh, piece I, I, is, have you been wrong yeah. about that? Right. Have you been like, that's yeah. the stupidest idea. And then you're like, wow, it actually became yeah. very successful. Let me tell you the story of thread up. Um, so y- yes, um, I've had this experience come back and sort of smack me in the face twice. And, and I approach these conversations now very differently as a result. The founder, one of the co-founders of ThreadUp was my student and uh, James Reinhardt. He had an idea. He observed his closet that he had these shirts that he loved but didn't wear anymore and uh, had the idea for peer-to-peer swapping of shirts. You'd stick it in a bag and send it to somebody. Somebody would find your shirt by looking at a website and stick it in a bag. And it's like, he came to me with the idea and it's like, James, there may be 10,000 people on the planet that want to do that. I think they're all hipsters who live in Williamsburg, you know, in Brooklyn somewhere. And, uh, you know, I just, I just don't think so. And his reaction was pretty, we didn't say it this way, but you could tell from the body language, like, what do you know about hipster shirts, old man? <laughs> he went away and he did it. He launched this business and, you know, he came back to me sometime later and said, you were absolutely right. We actually plateaued at 10,000. But it turned out there were military families that found our bags and they were stuffing four-year-olds clothing into the bags. And sort of they were like away from their extended families wherever they grew up. And, you know, so, so they had their kids and the kids outgrow the clothing. So they were swapping uh, children's clothing. And that took off. So they uh, raised venture capital around that idea. And that took off. And it was only one step away uh, to doing women's apparel from there. And, you know, ThreadUp is now a publicly traded company. I don't know. It's worth um, uh, at least a billion dollars. I haven't looked at the market cap in a while. So, yeah, um, you, you got to be because a, a, a good entrepreneur is only one pivot away from turning a bad idea into an OK idea or maybe even a great idea. Yeah. And I think that goes back to your point about failure where, you know, what is failure? I mean, because sure, you may say, okay, we failed at this hypothesis, but then we pivoted and we just slightly twisted or slightly um, tweaked our, our thesis here. And and now all of a sudden we found what, what it really is, like what the magic is of the company. Yeah. It, it happens a lot. It also happened to me. There was a business that came out of Harvard Business School called Tickle in 1998. And Tickle um, started as psychometric. Um, we, we have our MBAs take the Myers-Briggs inventory. And this 
student fell in love with that whole process and thought he would bring it to the world and sort of he would launch a business doing psychometric testing. And I thought, you know, I, I just, man, I don't think so. I don't think people really care that much. And uh, they didn't. But what they discovered along the way is if they ran tests, um, you'll remember these ads from that time frame, like, what kind of dog are you? It <laughs> went wild. At a point, Tickle was the 16th largest website and was acquired by monster.com, which at that point was a big successful company. So again, one pivot away from something great. Yeah, absolutely. So if somebody's sitting here and they say, Tom, that's great. Your book sounds fascinating, but we just don't want to read it. Just just tell us, like, why do startups fail and what should I do about it? What, what would you say to that? You know, there's there's a uh, Cliff Notes version. Um, you should probably find that on the web. Um, the, the book is structured around six failure patterns that uh, probably account for um, most startup failures. Three of them are early stage startups, startups that are just getting going. And three of them, um, surprisingly, uh, um, relate to later stage startups. You'd think that once you got past sort of the infant mortality phase that you'd be out of the woods and safe. Um, but it turns out that um, one out of three later stage companies fail to make money for their investors. And so those are the patterns. Um, in a nutshell, good idea, bad bedfellows. This is Quincy Apparel, the um, catalyst for this research. They had a good idea. They just never assembled. They themselves, uh, the founders were deficient in two big ways. And they brought a lot of strengths to the venture, but neither of them had ever worked in apparel design and manufacturing. And this turns out to be, not all startups require industry expertise, but this industry does, right? There are all these specialized tasks, fabric sourcer, pattern cutter, quality control, and they all need to fit together. And so they didn't have the skills. They've also, by the way, like a lot of MBAs, um, both thought themselves worthy and and fit to run the thing. So they became co-CEOs because they couldn't decide who's the boss. And inevitably that slows things down if you can't sort of choose who's going to make the call. So the founders were capable in some ways, but deficient in others. They hired a team with those skills I mentioned, but these were people that were hired out of big companies for their skill as a pattern cutter or, or a fabric sourcer. And in an early stage startup, you basically, um, you scrum around whatever fire is burning is hottest and everybody pitches in. These people didn't do that. Like I never had to help with that at Ann Taylor. I don't know how to do that job. So they would literally sit on their hands while the fire was burning. So the wrong um, right skills, but the wrong attitude. They raised money. Um, we at business schools tend to lionize venture capital and, and sort of an, an uh, aspiring entrepreneur coming out of a business school, you assume that's the only way to launch a startup is to raise venture capital. So Quincy was positioned as what's called a direct to consumer company. So um, a product sold over the internet. Uh, fancy name for for that, like Warby Parker, say. And that was just getting hot at the time. And tech investors all wanted one of these in their portfolios. But what um, tech investors do is they've got to push every single company in their portfolio to have the potential to be a 10 or 20 times return on the original investment, because they know that the vast majority of them are going to fail. You know, So they need huge returns on a few to, to cover the losses on the many. Sure. And um, and so these investors, um, apparel is not a thing you want to push to grow fast. You're going to make bad decisions. Of, um, you know, they told the founders the worst thing in the world you could have is a stock out, and miss a sale because you don't have the inventory. So build inventory takes capital. You know, and fashion goes out of fashion, and you have to discount it or just throw it away at the end of the season. So wrong investors, wrong team, wrong founders, and um, the factories that actually manufactured the stuff because the founders had no reputation and were a little peanut. 
um, would push their orders to the end of the line if somebody needed some a bigger customer needed something expedited. So good idea, bad bedfellows. False start is a pattern where founders just jump in and start building and selling the thing. They got a vision burning bright of what it is they're going to do, and they skip a phase of upfront research where you really validate, you confirm that the, there's an unmet customer need for what you have in mind. And you test the many, there's always many ways to, to launch a business, many solutions. And, and a good designer will test those before you invest a lot of time in engineering work. So, you know, to, to skip what might be four weeks of upfront work, they launch in, uh, create a flawed first version of the product. It takes four months to build it, sell it, figure out it isn't working and figure out what to, what to do next. And, you know, so they've made a bad trade. They've traded a bad four months in order to avoid spending four weeks. And, you know, if you've only got a year's worth of capital in the bank, like Quincy, that's really boosts your failure odds. False positive is the last early stage pattern. And that's just like COVID testing, right? You get false negatives and false positives as an entrepreneur. And this one is the signal from your early adopters who you absolutely need. Like somebody's got to be the first to take the plunge and buy your product. And you love those folks and you need them. Um, but it's often the case that their needs are different than the needs of, of the mainstream customers you need to build a big business. I mean, a great example of that would be Dropbox. And Drew Houston tested the product and his first customers were software engineers with really sophisticated demands for file management, multiple computers, collaborating with other people, big files and so forth. But he wanted to build something, he said, you know, as he was getting started, that was so easy to use, his mother could use it to store her recipes. And he did that. He actually had the discipline to not build what the software engineers wanted, but rather build something that was just flawlessly easy to use. So you know, that's one solution to the problem. But a lot of entrepreneurs will go barreling too hard in the direction of the early adopters and not have a good understanding of the difference between what they want and, and what the mainstream might want. And then there's um, three late stage patterns. Um, one is a speed trap, just what it sounds like. Um, it's, it's easy as an entrepreneur to, to grow, to try to grow too fast. Um, and, and sometimes you get early momentum. Investors come in at a really high share price. They expect you to keep growing. You try, but it's often the case that the next wave of customers after your early adopters are less interested in the product. So you have to market harder, you have to cut your price. And progressively the customers become harder and harder to acquire, worth less, but you're still growing and you may still attract more investment. Same time, um, you're hiring, if, if it's the kind of business that requires humans to do things, pack boxes, answer phones, you got to struggle to hire them and coordinate their work. And you're coming in a startup that has no systems, you know, sort of for managing the work. Uh, the culture can get out of whack. You get conflict between the old guard, um, the people that were there at the beginning and, the, and are mission driven and the new guard, you know, for whom this is just a job, generalists and specialists. So um, at some point, it's like musical chairs. And so do you realize the music has stopped? The investors <laughs> won't put another chair out there, you know, and, and you just sort of fall on your butt. And uh, help wanted is a late stage pattern. It's kind of the um, late stage version of bad bedfellows. Um, and, and it's often the case that a startup is missing a senior leader in a key function. So um, the, the case in the book um, is an online furnishing. If you look around you, everything around you was shipped there from somewhere. And, and so this was an online home furnishings company. And you can um, be happy if Amazon gets you your books two days early. You don't want the company shipping your couch to have it arrive two days early and sit on the curb because you're at sure. work or two days late and shipping a couch undamaged turns out to be really hard. So this company in particular um, went through three tries at a vice president of operations who could get the operations. And they were actually doing a good job of generating demand like Quincy. 
um, but they were missing this single executive in this key role, and that really hurt them. And at the same time, the other aspect of help wanted is um, capital markets are fickle, um, especially for a private company. So biotech would or clean tech would be examples. You know, basically the capital markets just shut down and and investors won't put money even into really healthy, promising companies. And this happened in e-commerce right around the time this company in question uh, needed to raise more. So help wanted. And the last pattern, late stage, is cascading miracles. Um, so this is a business that's bold and audacious. You know, so think SpaceX or Tesla. They're both examples, successful examples of cascading miracles where a bunch of things have to go right. The odds of them going right are pretty modest. And if any one of them goes wrong, you're toast. You know, so you may need engineering breakthroughs like SpaceX. You may need a, a fundamental change in customer behavior, like NASA willing to, you know, be willing to contract for rockets. You may need the support of industry incumbents who've benefited from the status quo. So, you know, some of these things work. Federal Express was an example, um, but a lot of them, you know, just one of the key assumptions will go wrong, and and. You know, they're big, expensive, you know, tens, hundreds, you know, billions of dollars in some cases. Segway would be an example of cascading miracles gone awry. Iridium, if any of your listeners remember the first effort to put um, 70 satellites in low Earth orbit so you could have, do phone calls anywhere on the planet. Um, sure. Bad idea. $8 billion bad idea. Yeah. Um, okay. So somebody's sitting here and they're, they're listening to this, Tom, and they're like, wow, those are definitely key points, right? Key, key lessons learned. And, and I like how you broke it out into those six for like early stage and late stage uh, companies. I think that's really smart. But somebody's sitting here and they're, they're thinking like, dang, you know, that's just like so much. Like, how do you like manage all that? Like, I mean, it just seems overwhelming. How do you navigate that as a, a founder when you're trying to get out there and, you know, you got this pressure to go sell, right? You got to sell, generate cash. So you have like, you know, revenue risk there, but you also have to manage all this other stuff. Like, how do you do that? Yeah. So um, I'd say, so first off, the late stage stuff is something you don't really need to worry about um, until you get through the early stage. So set all that, you know, aside as interesting thing. You can, if you ever get bored, you can go read that part of the book. The early stage stuff though, it really does boil down to um, don't make a false start. The false start is the number one killer of early stage startups. And the behavior is so understandable, right? Entrepreneurs, how do they define themselves? An entrepreneur has a bias for action. They get things done. They do stuff. Uh, and, and it's the overconfidence we were talking about before. They're sure they're right. They can see around corners. So they want to get started. And um, a lot of entrepreneurs are engineers. Engineers love to build things. So what could be more natural than diving in and starting to build the thing? My MBAs who are not technically trained um, hear correctly over and over again that to succeed as an entrepreneur, you need great product. How do you get great product? You have a great engineering team. Um, they're good at networking. So they go find a technical co-founder or they scrape together enough money to outsource the engineering. So whether you're technical or not technical, you're vulnerable to this thing because it's, it's sort of the core of the identity of an entrepreneur. And you just need the discipline to slow down. Once you bring the on engineers on board, however you do it, they're expensive. And the way you keep them busy is you give them something to build. So the advice I give to a lot of first-time entrepreneurs, aspiring entrepreneurs is don't recruit the team until you've done this work. The work we're talking about, a couple of people can do it. One person can do it, a couple of people. And it takes weeks, not months. And um, it can really, really increase um, the odds of success by just doing careful research. The lean startup folks call it customer discovery. You know, have you discovered uh, a real problem worth solving? 
And have you explored all the different ways you might solve that problem? Um, so that's that's the core at the core. And you know, the, the lean startup folks have been saying this for a long time. The scary thing is that people, their selective attention paid to lean startup. They do the they hear about the minimum viable product, and that's exciting because that involves building some stuff. And so they jump right to the MVP. But the MVP is actually the last stage in a process that sort of starts with exploring the market and, and learning about the customers. So how does empathy, do you think, how does empathy play into that whole customer discovery and just like that, that early understanding of product market fit and whether this is a big enough problem and, and talk a little bit about that. Um, yeah. So if you've, if you've ever come across a designer, a well-trained designer, they're all about empathy. You know, what a designer tries to do is to get into the head of the person they're designing for. And uh, that is just super powerful. Uh, it takes some training um, and, and some discipline. You know, many entrepreneurs will solve their own problem. Drew Houston built Dropbox because he, you know, this is another origin story. And again, I wonder if it's actually true, but, you know, supposedly he got on a, he was taking a bus from Boston to Manhattan and he had um, planned to work on some, he, he was a software engineer. He's going to work on a program that he'd been doing. He forgot to bring his thumb drive with him. So, you know, he sat there with his laptop, but no thumb drive and sort of cooked up the idea for Dropbox on that bus ride. So sometimes you solve your own problem, but, you know, then the entrepreneur just has to uh, make sure there are enough other people out there with the same problem, you know, and, and, and sometimes there are. Um, like Dropbox. So I, I'd, I'd advise anybody listening who aspires to be an entrepreneur, there's a lot of books out on on design thinking and thinking like a designer, user experience designer. It's such a powerful toolkit. I think first and foremost, every entrepreneur really needs, I mean, you're designing something new and, and that's what designers are good at and, and empathy is at the core of that. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So I'm on chapter six. Great book, by the way. So for those who are listening, I, I highly recommend this, but I'm on chapter six. And in chapter six, you talk about um, friends, right? And you, you get to a point in a business where you know maybe the friends that you brought on early on, or you started this business with, maybe you know their skills and capabilities aren't keeping up with the business, or it's time to replace them or shift them in different roles, and and that's really hard sometimes because dang, you know, like they're your friends, they've been there the whole entire time, they like believed in you from the get go. So, what advice do you have for somebody who? maybe friends with somebody, they're really passionate about idea. They want to start something with them. Is that a bad idea or does it just depend? It depends. Um, there are advantages to starting with somebody who you know well, who knows you well. Um, you, you can work with each other. You know, the other side's strengths and weaknesses. Um, there's trust. You know, it takes a lot of trust to sort of plunge into the unknown. So there are a lot of advantages. I mean, there's academic work that shows that ventures um, founded by either close family members, um, siblings, or parent, child, or husband and wife, or close friends are less stable, right? They're more likely to break up. And, and one of the reasons it goes to, I think what you're driving at is, and the Quincy founders were were um, good, they were best friends. Um, they, they were an example of this. They vowed at the beginning to never let disputes over the business get in the way of their friendship. They, they made that promise to each other. After the company failed, they, they had a big um, dispute over how, how and when to shut down, whether to shut down. And one wanted to keep going for a while, and the other thought it was time to sort of pull the plug and exit gracefully so people could, who were owed money could be paid back what they were owed. Uh, and um, it really got messy you know, down, to, down to the boardroom. 
um, with one forcing the other out through the board of directors. And they were not on speaking terms for a couple of years afterward. And, and I would say that with um, close friends or family members, fear of that, fear of letting conflict over the business gets in the way of confronting necessary conflict over the business. I mean, these decisions have to be made. And if you sure. sort of submerge them or push them down, you're actually going to boost your failure odds. So there's that. Uh, but there are there are the advantages. It's not hard to find examples of, of husband and wife teams that have done amazing things as entrepreneurs. So, you know, it's I mean, humans are complicated. And the answer to this one is complicated. I mean, the other problem, the chapter you're in is we're now scaling the startup. And it is true that roles in a company just outgrow people. Um, mm -hmm. And that amazing team that would, of generalists, jacks of all trades, who would sort of jump in and solve any problem, you know, and, and, and do whatever it took to solve it. Um, as the company gets bigger and more mature, you need a whole bunch of specialists. You know, you need somebody to run community relations. You need somebody to run digital marketing, you know, and the engineering gets much more complicated. And your generalists um, are often outgrown by the demands of the business. And so what do you do with them? You know, do, do you bring in the senior specialist and have the old generalist report to this individual? You know, for, for somebody who was side by side with the founder at the beginning, that's a pretty big ego blow, you know, so you don't want to fire these people. You're still incredibly loyal to them. You know, it's often the case, though, that a lot of startups, um, they have new things they're doing. And you can sometimes push those people who are good at the early stage into whatever um, the company's doing that's new and sort of takes the, the kind of energy and, and, and generalist orientation that somebody who loves that phase is good at. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And, and a lot of good points there. So let's shift gears and talk about strategy. So is strategy a bunch of garbage when it comes to startups? Because you're just like, well, you can't really have a strategy because you're just, you're building, you're measuring, you're learning, you're adjusting, you're doing all this stuff. Or do you think strategy is critical for people who are starting a business and, and trying to scale it up? Yep. That's a hard question because it goes, um, my, my colleagues who um, study strategy debate the definition of strategy all the time. You know, competitive strategy is how you position yourself relative to rivals. And sometimes that matters for startups, but it, you know it's often the case with startup that you're doing something in a big open new space and there's room for lots of people to try lots of different things. And it's not like you're competing with somebody else. Like you're watching out of the corner of your eye, they're pursuing a similar opportunity in a very different way. And you don't know whether your way is gonna work or their way is gonna work. So you got your eye on them, but it's not like Coke and Pepsi sort of nose to nose. Uh, another definition of strategy gets at how are you sustainably differentiated from other people? And that's really important to a startup. I mean, ultimately you gotta get there. And, and again, you may not face a lot of, of people doing what you're doing, but if you're doing anything interesting, you know, eventually, even if you're the pioneer, other people are going to find their way into your space. So, so you got to constantly be thinking about what's your basis for sustainable competitive advantage. And that's a strategy concept. So yeah, but um, to, to your opening point, it's really fluid, right? Most, most startups, especially early on, will do a lot of pivoting, just like the word comes from basketball, right? You sort of keep one foot planted and you move the other one, figuring out where to pass the ball. So some things stay the same and some things change. And, and that's very much part of startup life. And, but I think the pivots can be done with strategy in mind. Yeah. And I think there could be a danger. I mean, if you're just so tactical working on the day-to-day -day of the business and you don't have, you know, a, a strategy in place, I mean, you can run into some real trouble, don't you think? Yeah. The, the, the big strategy choice for a lot of startups is how fast to grow. 
you know, once once you have you use the term product market fit before, it's just what it sounds like. You've got a product that fits the needs of the market, and you may not be making money now, but at least you can see how over some reasonable period of time you're going to be able to meet the needs of the market profitably. And once you have product market fit, then the issue is. Uh, how hard do you step on the gas? And, and you know, again, back to the speed trap, it is possible to go too fast. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm sure you're a, you know, a very valuable mentor to a lot of people. And I'm sure you're impacting a lot of people's lives and they come to you for wisdom. And when we think about venture capital-based businesses and the failure rate there, and when students are coming to you and they say, Tom, you know, I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking about that. I'm just not really sure. Do you ever advise people to maybe consider entrepreneurship through acquisition? versus entrepreneurship just from, you know, startup? Yeah, that's that's another um, term that we fight about. I've got colleagues at, at the business school who teach exactly that entrepreneurship through acquisition. You sort of go find a business you can buy um, and then in most instances, fix it, uh, you know, do, do something to sort of take it to the next level. You know, depending on how you define entrepreneurship, uh, that's a very entrepreneurial act, right? You're taking a plunge, you're taking all sorts of risk. There's a shortage of resources always a shortage of cash. There may be a shortage of talent. But the, the way we define entrepreneurship at Harvard Business School is pursuing novel opportunity before you have access to all the resources you need to capture that opportunity, right? That's the definition, sort of doing something new um, bef- before you have the team, the money, the partnerships, et cetera. So entrepreneurship through acquisition doesn't fit the first part of that definition, sort of the doing something new part. Now I've got three brothers-in-law who all did that, exactly that. Uh, they, they bought a business and they consider themselves entrepreneurs. I think they're very entrepreneurial, but not, not by my formal definition. And, and yeah, I don't, I don't work with the students who do that. Um, what you tend to need to do that right is a really deep grounding in, fin- in, in financial management. I mean, um, you better learn more about working capital management than we teach in most of our finance courses at Harvard Business School. Sure. Because... Uh, you know, winning or losing is is often on that battlefield, right? You know, sort of managing your receivables, managing your inventory, yeah. stuff like that. And you know, and and businesses like this will often have a union. You know, so you've got labor relations issues that that um, in a lot of tech companies you just don't run into. This is a very different game. Uh, and and you've got existing customer relations. You know, as opposed to building new customer relationships, you got all sorts of customers who may be happy, may be cranky. So um, it's a completely different kind of preparation. Best preparation for that is, frankly, you know, having worked in private equity and sort of having seen how the bigger players do exactly the same thing. And then you sort of you miniaturize what Blackstone and, and KKR and TPG and places like that do. Sure. Absolutely. Great advice there. So let's talk about entrepreneurs who they've been in business for years. They've been working hard. They've been putting in those 70 to 80 hours and they just feel stagnant or stuck. So what advice do you have for them? Yeah, this this um, is a close cousin to the question of how do you figure out when to pull the plug on a struggling mm-hmm. startup? And you know what I have observed is that if you ask failed entrepreneurs after the fact, do you wish you'd shut down earlier? More often than not, the answer is yeah, yeah. We we ran the thing too long. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why an entrepreneur will do that. You know, there are a bunch of moves you got when you're struggling. You got to try to pivot. You got to try to sell the company. You got to try to raise money from new investors. You try to get a bridge loan from existing investors. Also, you try cost reduction and you got to play those moves out. 
And then it's also, you know, again, it goes to the identity of an entrepreneur. Uh, entrepreneurs are persistent, you know, told over. And you hear these stories of 11th hour rescues. So, you know, am I a good entrepreneur if I throw in the towel? And, and, and it's also an issue of, do you actually have anybody you can talk to about this? If you're struggling, you tend to not want to talk it through with all of your employees because um, they may sort of realize what's going on and leave, hastening the decline. Um, sure. Or your investors from whom you're trying to get a bridge financing, right? You can't lie to them, but um, you don't necessarily want to have a have a careful talk through of all your problems. So often you don't, and, and by the way, your spouse or significant other is so sick of you working 80-hour weeks um, that they're tired of talking to you. So you, you very often will run out of anybody to talk to about how you're feeling, um, and which makes it harder to make the choice, the hard choice to end it. And so, uh, so people tend to delay it. I mean, the, the right test here is, are you out of moves? Um, you know, have you tried everything you can think of and, and, and it ain't going anywhere? It's just not, the, the needle's not moving. And are you miserable, right? I mean, being an entrepreneur is hard and there's a lot of rewards when it's, when it's going well and even sometimes when it's not going well, but it's long hours and it's lots of pressure. It takes a huge toll on personal relationships. Often an entrepreneur will set out with a vision to do something very mission-driven. You know, we're going to do this. And after a bunch of pivots, you end up selling um, used women's clothing as opposed to hipster male shirts. Sure. Um, you know, so so is the vision, are you still pursuing the vision that got you excited in the first place? And if the answer to that is no, if you are miserable and if you're out of moves, then then it's time. Um, you know, a good entrepreneur, after they recharge their batteries and reflect on what happened, will will find another opportunity. And have you ever come across somebody who really struggles with mental health based on like this type of failure? Because, you know, as an entrepreneur, you, you sacrifice a lot with friends, with family, financial resources, you're giving up as you're bootstrapping, and then you tie your identity to that. So you're like, dang it, my venture failed. So I'm a failure. And I, I imagine some people could go into a, a deep depression, you know, with this, what, what, it, what would you say to somebody who's just like, dang, Tom, you know, I just failed. I feel like a loser right now. I just like, I'm in this deep, dark depression. But what would you say to that? Yeah, I, I'd say it's a pretty natural human response to, to that course of events. Um, you know, you, you have wrapped all your, as you say, you've wrapped your whole identity into this thing. You are the business, the business is you and the business failed. So there's no escaping the fact that um, a big part of you has failed. The emotions at the beginning, or you know, right right at the end, let's put it that way, uh, super strong. Rage, um, shame, um, grief, anger at the co-founder who lost interest, or the investor who sort of pushed for the wrong strategy. Um, so, so you got to deal with all those. Uh, but, but eventually, um, what sets in for a lot of people? I mean, and. and when folks are clinically depressed, there's a lot of rumination and, and it's easy for the failed entrepreneur to get caught in a cycle of ruminating over what did I do wrong? What could I have done differently and so forth? And so, I mean, healthy response, um, spent a lot of time talking to founders who sort of worked through all this, find some distractions, you know, exercise actually, um, make, and yoga make pretty big difference. Um, so you have to alternate. If it's pure distraction, then you won't learn anything from the experience and, you, and sure. you'll just bottle it up and it'll come back and bite you later. And if it's pure rumination, you will um, make yourself crazy and miserable. So you got to cycle between the two, find side projects as a distraction, exercise, whatever. And eventually, um, for most folks, the emotions will settle down and you get you gain enough distance. I mean, there's a very, very natural human response 
so fundamental in psychology. It's called the fundamental attribution error. And that is if you did something wrong, I assume that it was a problem with your character or your ability. Um, If I did something wrong, um, the the universe was conspiring against me or somebody else dropped the ball because I'm me. It couldn't possibly have been my fault. And so that's like every human is wired up. You just have to defend your ego. We all do that. And it's a big danger for the failed entrepreneur, right? Sort of to blame the failure on everybody else. And usually there's a lot of blame to go around. So so you want some of that. But, you know, the, the co-founder who supposedly dropped the ball, you chose. The investor who pushed you for in the wrong direction, you chose. So, you know, eventually the founder needs to own those things. And some do and many do not. They just keep denying. And uh, there's the other extreme, which is the founders who take just way too much responsibility, personal responsibility for the failure. I um, was a miserable failure as an entrepreneur. I shouldn't have done it. I should never do it again. I'm hopelessly ill-suited for the role. And that's rare. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes people just aren't wired up to be entrepreneurs, but sure. usually it's the case. So both of those extremes are are unfortunate. You know, in one case, uh, a potentially talented person will never be an entrepreneur again because they've concluded they're poor fit to the role. In the other case, the entrepreneur blames everybody else and gets back on the horse and, you know, will ride over the same cliff a second time or a third time. You know, so we, you want to end up somewhere in the middle. And 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 when you do, um, when you've learned from the experience and can explain to people what you've learned and what you'll do differently, and if you failed gracefully, and by that I mean you timed the shutdown in ways that you can uh, be responsible to all the stakeholders. People who are owed money get paid, not the investors, but um, employees get paid, the tax authorities get paid, vendors who sold you something get paid. If If you do that and you can explain what you learned, most entrepreneurs, I think, can bounce back and, and do it again and, and, and often sort of succeed the second time. Yeah, that's great. Okay, Tom, last question. So you're a smart guy and you're surrounded by a lot of brilliant people and you come across a lot of great ideas. What's one piece of advice you would leave for the listeners today? Like, and it, it, Whether it's about startups or whether it's about life, whether it's about whatever, but like you're like, hey, this is one thing I would tell somebody Yeah, I think think it applies to many walks of life, but especially to entrepreneurs and aspiring entrepreneurs. I I close the book with a letter to a first-time founder, which actually gets um, right right to what you're talking about. And the letter makes the argument that, hey, there's all this conventional wisdom out there about what makes for a good entrepreneur. And, you know, like a lot of conventional wisdom, there's a basis of truth in a lot of it. It makes sense. But pursued to the extreme and pursued blindly, it can actually lead you in the wrong direction. So, uh, be persistent, you know, persistent. Yeah. Entrepreneurs better be persistent. You get knocked down, dust yourself off and come back at it. But if persistence turns to stubbornness, you may um, not see the need to pivot. Grow. We, you know, we talked about every every entrepreneur really wants to grow, but growing too fast can get you in a lot of trouble. So there's a lot of lot of conventional wisdom. And, the, and probably the biggest piece, and this is the one I think applies to lots of people, is um, entrepreneurs are told to trust their gut, trust their intuition, trust their instinct. And again, it is a big advantage to being able to move fast, especially if you're competing with big, slow corporations. But um, there's a wonderful book out there by um, Daniel Kahneman called Thinking Fast and Slow, which talks about these two mental ways of making decisions. The slow thinking is deliberate. You sort of weigh the pros and cons and all the options, and et cetera. And fast is the intuition. And as human humans, we use both and you need both. An entrepreneur needs both. There are situations where you got to move fast, but there are situations where you want to think slowly, um, choosing a co-founder, choosing an investor, 
picking the target market, you know, figuring out if the early adopters have the same needs as the mainstream customers, you know, and these things don't trust your gut. Your gut may be racked by strong emotion and you won't make a clear headed decision. Sleep on it, sleep on it two nights, list the pros and cons, show that to somebody who knows you well and your strengths and weaknesses and what you're up to. And, and uh, you know, think fast and think slow. I love that. That's great. What a wonderful conversation today. Thank you so much, Tom, for sharing your insights and congratulations on the book. Check it out um, for everybody who's listening. I, I highly recommend it, like I mentioned before. And um, Tom, yeah, just keep adding value like you're doing. I mean, I, I think you're, you know, you're in such a great spot. Like what a wonderful career to be able to impact so many people's lives. So kudos to you. Thanks, Steve. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. If there's any way I can be helpful to you and your business, or if you have feedback or ideas regarding this podcast, shoot me an email at contact at I would love to connect. All the best.